I'd like for you to turn to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. I want to read verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to Him, and He sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to, st- to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down. It's the second time now he writes on the ground. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Here's the question. Did no one condemn you? And, he, and she said, Not one, Lord. No one, Lord. And and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Compassion is the beginning of deliverance from condemnation. Deliverance from condemnation begins with compassion. If you've ever found yourself in a place where you were um, about ready to receive um, condemnation that you deserved, and somebody came to your rescue, then you understand the value of compassion. Compassion is not pity. Pity in itself is very private. It's... um, It sits with its hands folded. It's very passive. But compassion is sympathy with shoes on its feet. Compassion is sympathy moving into action. It's moving to meet a need to bring healing and recovery and renewal and hope. And if you've had much dealing with God, you'll know that there is a lot of compassion and a little condemnation. Um, I want you to turn, before we get into this, to, the, to an example in the Old Testament. And it's in the third chapter of the book of Lamentation. Now, Lamentation is over there by Jeremiah. In fact, it's written by the same author. Lamentation chapter 3 comes after Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And I... I have my place in verse 21 of chapter 3. Let me give you a little background of lamentation. For two and a half chapters, Jeremiah is lamenting the plight of his people. 
they are receiving the just judgment of God upon this nation. They have fallen to the Babylonians and their city now is under the control of the Babylonians. They're suffering for it. And in the darkest hour of Jeremiah's life, as he laments the plight and the condition of his nation, he says in verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, notice the plural, loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions, plural, never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, a good exercise for you and I would be every morning when we get up and look to the east to see the rising of the sun, just remember that the compassions of God are new for this day. And his loving kindnesses never fail. They are renewed every morning. So with the rising of the sun is this compassion of God renewed. Compassion for that day. That is the sympathy of God, the empathy of the Father moving to meet our need. There's a New Testament illustration of that. It's found in the 10th chapter of the book of Luke. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, when you say that word, if you're a Jew, you say it with a slur. They never said it with dignity. It was a term, it was a word that suggested the worst kind of bigotry and hatred. And they said this with a, with a slur. And you know the story of the Good Samaritan. Here was this man who, though he was a Samaritan, saw a man in need on the road, uh, met that need, ministered to that need, took him and put him in a hotel and told the man, now in the morning, if he has another need, you take care of that need and I'll be back later and pay you. His compassions were renewed every morning. So from the experience of the Old Testament relationship with God and the New Testament example of man, there, are, there is a tremendous background with regard to compassion. i say it again. Deliverance from condemnation begins with compassion. Now how do you grade out with regard to compassion? How do you grade out with regard to compassion? Let me ask you this. If you were reading in your local paper, in your newspaper in the morning, you read about a man who was uh, attacked on the street of New York and mugged, beaten up and stabbed, left for dead. You'd probably, you know, uh, read that and think, man, this is, this is terrible, poor guy. But, but if you read on and found out he was a member of the mafia, would that change your, your feeling, attitude at all? Or if you heard somebody report that a young man down the street passed away after a long, after a lengthy illness, would you not be moved with sympathy about that? And, and in your heart you'd be touched. And then you heard this man, young man died with AIDS. Would that change your feeling a little bit? Or if on your way to work in the morning you saw a commotion ahead of you and you found out somebody had been killed by a hit and run driver and as you approached and you got out of your car really touched by that with you know, compassion and concern and then you found out it was a prostitute, would that change your feeling? 
I mean, how do you grade out with regard to compassion? Now this story is about a woman who's brought into an assembly where Jesus was meeting with his, some, some people, some disciples. It was a beautiful setting really. Everything was just perfect for the, for the morning. It was early in the morning and they were kind of gathered, gathered around the temple and there was this setting there of people who were eager to hear from Jesus. And all of a sudden there was this explosion in their midst. Well, in this group of people were, was brought this woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. There were these men who brought her and their, their, their anger was honed on hatred. They, they were not really, they did not really hate the woman or even what she did, but they hated Jesus. They just despised him. And they were looking for any way to trap him. It, it's, it'd be like you just kind of settle down on some placid lake and you're just kind of drifting along in a boat. All of a sudden that lake is just churned with a storm. It becomes a death trap. It's kind of like you tossing out your line and all of a sudden hooking the Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster. They, you, all of a sudden there is this perfect setting is just explodes with anger and hostility and aggression and anger. Can you imagine what it had been like this morning in your Bible class? You're settling down to a little Bible study and just kind of, you're in my class kind of nodding, you know. <laughs> it's nice and warm in there and kind of, and all of a sudden into this room burst these angry men with this disheveled woman and they hurl her into the midst of this calm and tranquil Bible class. And they're like angry wolves and this woman is a part of the bait. She's a piece of meat in the trap because they're after Jesus after all and it's all a setup. Now this is a sensitive story really. It's a sensitive subject. Talk about adultery in the very act. But this woman was taken from her partner and she was brought, dragged to Jesus, some of his followers in the temple, and she never defends herself. She never speaks a word except one sentence, no man, Lord. And here are these men who who have all these rules and regulations, they're so bound by rules and regulations, they're like a corset. And this is a terrible thing this woman has done. How different then from now, because now we make, you know, we joke about it on uh, the Oscars <laughs> uh, presentation. We talk about, we laugh about adultery, not then. For in that time, a Jew was to die before he did three things. Before he was guilty of idolatry or murder or adultery, he should die. And they said, Jesus, you know the law, and they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now the law and those books that codified the law, the Mishnah and the Talmud said, that any time a woman was caught in the act of adultery, she was to be stoned, but the law didn't stop there. The man was to be put to death as well. Now when the Mishnah and the Talmud came to codify the law or to explain it, 
They, that, those books said that the man was to be put to death by, by strangulation. They are to take a towel and put it around his neck, two men, one on either side, and he was to, to be strangled to death. Let me ask you, where's the man here? Now, last week, if you were reading your paper or saw on your television this big uproar about what happened in Hempstead, this little town down, in, uh, down near Houston where four teenagers who were, on the, who were cheerleaders got pregnant. And these, these girls, uh, there's a big furor, were told they couldn't cheer, you know, leave the cheers anymore. And, 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 and then a lawsuit was brought. You know the story. And everybody is really upset about the fact that these girls were reinstated. Let me ask you this. Do you think anything about where the guys were? I mean, the last time I checked, there has to be a man and a woman before something like this could happen. Where are the, where's the man? The possibilities of these, he escaped, which is very unlikely because there was a group of people who sure caught the woman. Perhaps he was just allowed to go free, and when you see the scenario here, scenario here and the plan here and the strategy here, that's, that seems viable. Some have suggested that this male partner of the woman was one of them. Interesting twist on the story. To this man, it seems very unlikely that they would just stumble into somebody's bedroom and catch this thing happening, that, this, that one of the, ma the male partner was one of these men and it was all a setup to begin with. Interesting twist. Now this is the question. What do you do with this woman? If he said, stone her like the law says, then the word begins to spread that this man of love and compassion is really not a man of love and compassion after all. And besides that, he would have been troubled with Rome because in a, in, a, in a previous discussion we observed that Rome is the only authority that had the, the, the right and the authority to pronounce the death penalty. He'd have been in trouble with Rome. If he said stoner, he would have been in trouble. If he said let her go, then the cry, hue and cry would be, well, okay, but what about the law of Moses? You're going to just disregard the law? And so Jesus did something he, has, he never did again, not before or after. He stooped down and he wrote in the sand on the ground. The word there, as you saw it in the text, is the word katagraphe. Two words in the Greek, combination words. Graphe, writing, kata. Uh, down, really, literally down. So he wrote something down. Now, everybody speculated on what he wrote. He wrote down something. But the word kata, prior to the word graphe, is sometimes used, as in Job 3.26, Against Some have suggested that he wrote against them. That is, he wrote down on the ground the sin of those men. That had been an exciting and wonderful thing to have your sin 
Anybody want to line up tonight and get that done? Just have your sin written out on the ground. But someone suggested that the whole key to this was in the finger with which he wrote. Now let me ask you this question. With what did God write the command, the law of Moses that they were so concerned about? With what did he write the law of Moses on the stone tablet? With what? His finger. And what happened to that uh, first uh, stone tablet on which he had written the commandments? What happened to it? You, you answer me. What happened to it? Moses smashed them in his anger. And so what did he do a second time? He, he wrote a second time with his finger, as he did here. He stooped down a second time and wrote with his finger. What happened to those tablets? You answer me. You talk to me. What happened to them? They were put in the ark. They're in the ark covered by the mercy seat. Somebody suggested, maybe a little eisegesis going on here, but good suggestion, that what the whole point is, is that Jesus is saying, you see this finger with this finger, the law was written on the stone in the first place, and when that stone was broken and smashed, I wrote a second time, and that stone, that law, was placed under the seat of mercy. And the whole point is, gentlemen, it's time you and I begin to exercise a little compassion and mercy. So one by one they left. The oldest first because they had the most written down, <laughs> written against. And one by one they left and she, watch this, she was alone. The first lesson Jesus taught was that only, are you hearing? Only the guiltless have the right to judge. No stones have been thrown. As a matter of fact, the stones are lying on the ground like um, discarded weapons, discarded um, instruments of death lying on the ground. And he asked a question, one line in all 66 books of the Bible. You will never find it any other place. One line, did anyone condemn you? And her answer, no one, Lord. Now, I want you to sense the impact of this moment in time. If it would be possible to go back and relive, to be there, it would be, it'd be absolutely astounding, wonderful. Here is this sinless Son of God, and He's standing in the presence of a woman who has just been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act, and He's standing in her presence. This sinless woman, he, this sinful woman, He is sinless. This woman of sin in this man who never knew sin. And he said to her, neither do I. Now there are three principles. I want you to jot these down. Confronting wrong calls for understanding, not cruelty. 
Now, if it falls your lot to confront another brother, go with the understanding of Galatians 6, let, you know, let there be this humility and compassion and love because you could be in the same condition were it not for the love and grace of God. Number two, condemning wrong requires humility and grace, not pride. Now listen to this. You have the right to condemn pride, but you don't have the right to condemn in pride. Number three, Correcting wrong begins with compassion and ends with hope, not rebuke. Now, I want to say five quick things about that. You say, oh, no, I was at the end of this and I thought it was over. I want to say five quick things. I want you to hear this. Number one is a question. What emotion do you feel when you know the sin of another? I have a feeling that there is more glee when we hear about the sin or the failure of another for most of us than there is compassion and grief. There is just something about the fallen nature that delights in the failure of someone else. We just feel better that way. I'm going to confess to you something to you. I've had to confess this to God and I've got it in my journal. I promise you it's the truth. I've got it in my journal. I pray about this. I've been, I have been tremendously guilt, uh, convicted of guilt of finding delight in, these, in the failure of these TV evangelists. I mean, it's one of my biggest problems. And I read about, you know, these guys that get, you know, caught or, and, you know, and I almost am glad, you know, I'm almost glad to hear that Robert Tilton has gone bankrupt. You know what, it, you know what the appropriate emotion should be? Deep and abiding grief. Um... One, one night, I, my, 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 my entire family went to see a Ranger game. I've mentioned this before. And my, my older daughter was with us. She had just gotten out of college, may have been in college. And right in the middle of the, at the fifth inning where they come out, you know, at the, between innings and, and level up the field, you know, and run those harrows around out there, there was this old drunk came out of the stands. He ran out on the field. He staggered out on the field, really. He was just looped, loop-de-looped. And before you, could, before you could even realize it, he, he was out and he was headed to second base. And he was staggering. He touched second base and headed for third. And when he, when he and, you know, and the crowd realized what was happening, and the security hadn't even made it out yet. They were cheering him, and when he got to third, he dove into third base, just head first, and rooted up the ground. And everybody was laughing and cheering, and he got up and was headed for home. And they came out of the stands, the security people came rushing out there and hauled him away, a staggering old drunk. And my older daughters started laughing. My my 
first response was to reach over and touch her arm and say, don't laugh at that. How do you feel when you see someone's failure? I mean, you need to ask yourself that question. You hear about one of your friends that gets in trouble. What does that do to you? Does it break your heart? Number three, Jesus didn't, condemn, didn't come to condemn, but to save. The interesting thing about this story is, is that Jesus didn't condemn even the men, the scribes and the Pharisees. Did you get that? I mean, he turned to the woman and he said, I don't condemn you for what you've done. But the amazing thing about it is he didn't condemn the scribes and the Pharisees who were after him, hounding him day after day. These scoundrels who were a part of this conspiracy. He didn't even condemn them. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Number four. To stop sinning always follows upon divine forgiveness. Now, it's interesting that he didn't say, go and sin no more and I'll not condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. And it's in the proper order, see. For the motivation for us not to sin is because he's already had compassion and forgiveness. That's the motivation, never to sin. Did you understand that? We get the cart before the horse. We say, well, I shouldn't sin so I won't be, so I can have forgiveness. I shouldn't sin so I won't be condemned. He said, I don't condemn you now because I love you with this compassion. Don't ever do it again. That's the motivation. One last thought. God takes us and works with us from where we are today. Now hear me well. Perfection is not a prerequisite for God to begin His work with an individual. Perfection rightly belongs at the end of the process of God's dealing with us, not at the beginning or even in the middle. In other words, the, the, this woman was a part of what God dreamed for the world. It wasn't because she was perfect. She definitely wasn't because perfection is at the end of the process, not the beginning. You like Lucado? Let me finish with this. If I can find it. You do like Locato? Hear this. The, salt, the small house was simple but adequate. It consisted of one large room on a dusty street. Its red tile roof was one of many in this poor neighborhood on the outskirts of the Brazilian village. It was a comfortable home. Maria and her daughter Christina had done what they could to add color to the gray walls and warmth to the hard dirt floor. An old calendar, faded photograph of a relative, a wooden crucifix. The furnish, furnishings were modest, 
a pallet on either side of the room, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant, the young mother stubbornly refusing opportunities to remarry, got a job and set out to raise her young daughter. And now 15 years later, the, the worst years were over, though Maria's salary as a maid offered few luxuries. It was reliable and it did provide food and clothes. And now Christina was old enough to get a job and help out. Some said Christina got her independence from her mother. She recoiled at the traditional idea of marrying young and raising a family. Not that she couldn't have had her pick of husbands. Her olive skin and brown eyes kept a steady stream of prospects at her door. She had an infectious way of throwing her head back and filling the room with laughter. She also had that rare magic some women have that makes every man feel like a king just by being near them. But it was her spirited curiosity that made her keep all men at arm's length. She spoke often of going to the city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighborhood for exciting avenues and city life. Just the thought of this horrified her mother. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. People don't know you there. Jobs are scarce and life is cruel. And besides, if you went there, what would you do for a living? Maria knew exactly what Christina would do or would have to do for a living. That's why her heart broke when she woke one morning to find her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. She also knew immediately what she must do to find her. She quickly threw some clothes in a bag, gathered up all her money, and ran out of the house. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, the curtain, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for street walkers or prostitutes, she went to them all. At each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept at the bus, as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. 
Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again. And there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room, removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. I'm glad that one night a guy walked up to me, a senior in high school, and put his arm around me and said, Gerald, you don't have a very good reputation. You're not the person you should be but I want you to know that I love you just like you are. And I did. Come home. How do you grade with regard to compassion? Let's pray. Our Father, ask us the question. Jesus, ask us. Does anyone condemn you? Yes, Lord, ask us another question. Do you condemn others? And give us the grace to answer both. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. I want to ask you tonight, look, look, look here. Right. Would, you, would you like to come, would you be willing to come tonight and give your heart to Jesus Christ? The wonder of this Lord is that He accepts you right where you are. You don't have to be perfect. Perfection is at the end of what He wants to do with you, not the beginning. Or maybe you'd like to come tonight to, to, to join this fellowship or to... Um, do you have a problem with being judgmental? you have a problem with that? condemnatory, condemning, critical nature. Maybe you need to leave that at the altar. While we stand, would you come?